Good morning, friends. How are we doing this morning? Glad you're all braving the wet, rainy weather. Rain coming a little earlier from what I'm told than is usual, but I guess that's good for things like fires and things like that. We are wrapping up our series in John, the hidden music of John's gospel. But as we begin this morning, we are continuing in our congregational memory verse. Just let me encourage you any way I can uh, to spend some time. We said we would start with the words from Ephesians chapter 1. Beth is shaking her head at me like, don't you dare come near me with a microphone. So (laughs) we're safe. We're going to have our deacons help us... uh, read the verses if they're willing, but uh, we want to do everything we can to have these words constantly before us and get them into our memory. Also, I wanted to make you aware, Heather Woods made some nice copies, like on pretty paper. If you like an aesthetic to go with those words, they're on a chair in the back there. You can just pick one up and enjoy that. So, I'll be reading from New King James Version, The Whole Armor of God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of the wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done so, stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being faithful to the end with all perseverance, and supplication for all the saints. Thank you, brother. It takes a little while to download a little bit larger pieces of chunks of the scripture like that, but the fruit that is there for us, it's a beautiful thing. So whether you're old or young, some of us have... uh, certain um, RAM limitations, we feel like, in the computer up there. Uh, it's okay. Just spend what, do what you can. If you're a um, high-end Intel processor, praise God. If you are still a Commodore 64 or whatever, <laughs> praise God. We'll get there. Okay, so we are finishing up John chapter 21, verse 1 and 2. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, 
the sons of Zebedee, the two other disciples were together. So over half the disciples, uh, the apostles are together and they're uh, up there and they decide to take a trip. So after the drama and the emotions, the highs and the lows of everything that was happening in and around Jerusalem, it appears there's a bit of a lull in the schedule. And in the strange in-between time after the resurrection of Jesus, but before the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, they have this little window of time. So some of the disciples, they decide, you know, we're going to head home for a bit. And in the vacuum of leadership and the lack of clarity about purpose or clear instructions, people tend to go back to the things they know and to the places that they are familiar with. This can be good or bad. So things have gone full circle now. It all began in the Sea of Galilee. And now we end up there again in the Sea of Galilee in a boat. So uh, I don't know what to make out of. He lists the names specifically. So we have Peter, the denier, Thomas, the doubter, Nathaniel from Cana, who said, can anything good come from Nazareth? The doubted the goodness of Jesus. Sons of Zebedee, you know, they... They have their own drama. They have mommy trying to make concessions with Jesus for them. And they, they want to call down thunder on people and things like that. And then two other disciples who are unidentified by John. So there's seven of them anyway. And they decide that they're going to go up and they're going to go fishing. I'm going out fishing, Simon Peter told them and said. And then they said to him, We'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So they started out in a boat. They end up now in a boat. The boat they are in, that some people think, that could be a symbol of the church, the gathering of the disciples together. And sometimes it's just the church feels like this little boat adrift in the storm. Things are dangerous. Waves are coming in. We have to bail water out. It feels like the, the, the boat could capsize at any moment. And other times it feels like, as a church, we're out all night fishing. Fishing in the dark. Not getting anywhere. No success whatsoever. And while we're just waiting around trying to make sense of our life, what's our purpose, what's our mission, what's my place in all of that? We tend to go back to what's familiar, to what's comfortable, and we just fish the best we know how. And when you're not sure exactly what to do or what you're supposed to be doing or you need just time to think or space away to figure things out, why not go ahead and go fishing? For a few of you, this might be the only words that stick all morning. The preacher told me to go fishing, honey. So I got an applause. Okay. <laughs> so Peter and these other disciples, they're fishing all night long, but they don't catch anything. And don't miss the symbolism. They struggle in the darkness and they have no success. There is no fruit produced from their efforts in the dark. But then a new, dawn, a new day dawns. The morning star comes. And after the darkness of death, there is a resurrection of the Lord that they had witnessed. 
They're still figuring out the implications of all of this. And then the resurrected Lord calls out from uh, the shore to them in the early morning light, and he gives them new instructions. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. As it turns out, Jesus, he knows the best fishing holes, doesn't he? You ever think about that? You know, if you've done any fishing, you know that fishermen can be pretty secretive about their favorite fishing holes. I don't know if, you've know, if you know that or not. The best spots, their hidden lakes, the, the little bends in the river, the rock formations, the, they can be pretty secretive about that. I was out kokanee fishing with my uh, dad and uh, daughters, and we weren't doing too well until one of the guys there, after he had got his limit of kokanee, gave us the secret formula for that day, exactly where the fish was. It was this red corn you had to put on with these little millworms, artificial millworms. And when you did that combination, for some reason, the fish were just on it that day. So fishermen are pretty secretive usually about this information. Jesus is generous, though. He's generous to share. He knows that there are plenty of fish to go around. Jesus teaches us how to be fishers of men. And he shows us how to go about fishing for men and fishing for people right from where we are. He knows the best strategies. He knows the best spots. He knows the best techniques, the tricks for us. And when he tells us to cast our nets on the other side, the question for us is, first of all, will we hear him when he's telling us? And the second question is, will we actually listen and obey? So this guy from the shore is yelling out to the disciples, tells them to put the nets on the right side of the boat. They do, and there's so many fish, they can't actually pull the net into the boat. There's that many. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord! He wrapped his outer garment around him before he, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. Peter is so excited at this possibility. And he doesn't make the connection as quickly as John does in the miracle that's taking place. But as soon as John says it, something clicks with Peter. And in his excitement, he grabs his garment and he's in. He can't wait for the boat. So I was thinking, it reminded me of a scene from a movie, Forced Gump. And he's so excited to go see Lieutenant Dan. When Lieutenant Dan shows up, a friend of his, that he just can't wait for the boat. And he's off and he's into the water. So that's the way Peter is a little bit, I think. Just that, that genuine excitement, that desire to be together with Jesus again. So the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, about 100 yards And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, and there were fish on it and some bread. Again, in the simple image that's presented to us by John, don't miss that the Lord 
Jesus is caring for the needs of his disciples. He's out there cooking them breakfast. He's taking care of their needs. And as the Lord multiplied bread and fish before his death, as the Lord took care of the needs of his disciples, teaching them things, washing their feet, uh, as he did that before his death, so now the resurrected Jesus continues that work of care for his disciples. Don't miss that. Jesus is there to take care of their needs. But something else is happening as well. Look at verse 10. And then Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So let's not run by this verse too quickly. Not only does Jesus continue to provide for our needs, but now there is an invitation to participate. Participate in what will be given and what will be shared for the feast. Jesus invites the disciples to add what to what he has prepared. And in the hidden music of John's Gospel, I think this is significant. Our Lord asks us to participate in the, fe the feast that he is preparing for all humanity. All those who love him and follow him and belong to him. See, when we are obedient to the Lord, we produce fruit in our lives. We are productive, and the things that we produce, the things that really matter that we produce, those will continue. Those will be shared together in an eschatological feast ending all, at the end of all time. So we have a real role to play, that means. We get to legitimately add to what is going on. We have a mission, we have a purpose, and we are supposed to give toward it. So Simon Peter, he climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net, it was not torn. So Peter, he doesn't tell the others, he doesn't signal them, you know, you take care of it. This is what Jesus says, you guys, you guys do that. Notice that he jumps right in and he does himself what Jesus asks. Peter is a servant leader who doesn't hesitate to obey. And a lot of people focus on this number, uh, 153. What is that, the significance of that? Uh, divisible by 17 or nines or, you know, and there's, there's a lot that People, there's a lot of ink that has been spilled over this and forests of trees cut down and all of that. But from what I can tell, uh, if there was specific in, uh, significance of that, it's been lost in history. And so maybe the Spirit will reveal that to people at certain times or places. Uh, but I know I couldn't find a clear understanding for that for myself. But another significant thing, though, is the, is the net itself. So this 153 large uh, fish would be an unimaginable haul. And the engineering of what they, they built, built the, the way they built their nets, there's no way they could handle this weight. The infrastructure they had was not set up for this kind of abundance in their catch. So not only does Jesus tell them where to, where to catch the fish, and he shows them how to fish, or he tells them to cast their nets on the other side, 
But when they do catch a bunch of fish, the nets hold together in order to be able to land the fish. So Jesus goes on and he says to them, Come on, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. So they're just coming on this scene. They're, they're out a hundred yards or so. They hear this. They see these cats. Peter's gone on ahead. So the narrator of this story, he's still in the boat and they're coming in. And no one's asking who this is. They're witnessing what's going on. But still, at some level, this is unbelievable. And we don't need to make too much of this, but suffice it to say, Jesus keeps showing up in ways and in places that surprise his disciples, don't they? Behind locked doors, presenting his wounds to Mary in the garden. All of these places, Jesus keeps showing up and revealing himself to his disciples. So Jesus came and he took bread and he gave it to them. And then he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So the last time we read about Jesus breaking bread and fish and feeding them to people was in the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 of John. But this second breaking and serving of bread and fish, it's much more humble. It's intimate. It's with together with his disciples there in Galilee. And it still seems impossible to them that Jesus can be there but here he is cooking them breakfast. But Jesus had another reason for appearing this third time. He's taking care of their needs, but there's also another need that needs to be met. Jesus knows that Peter is still hurting. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. So Jesus is coming to Peter out of love. Jesus comes and appears to Peter in order to help heal Peter's broken heart. And in the moment of the excitement of everything that was going on, Peter jumping in the lake, you know, the, this miraculous catch of fish, Peter, John, he, he, everyone's there and uh, Peter is together with the Lord and then the Lord starts asking these questions. I don't know that Peter gets immediately what was taking place or what it is that Jesus was doing. Jesus was speaking directly to Peter's greatest need. Peter's greatest need in this moment was for forgiveness. 
And Jesus, by asking these questions, he speaks into his greatest need, Peter's greatest failure, and Peter's greatest shame. And when he asks the question the third time, suddenly Peter realizes what is going on in that moment. Because earlier Peter had said three times, essentially, I am not his disciple. I am not his disciple. I am not a disciple of Jesus Christ. And now three times Jesus invites him to confess his love out loud in words. And then he gives him a mission. I I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are older, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me, follow me. So in following the affirmation of love with words, Jesus three times provides the context where that love is to be proved. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. That is the context where our love is proved, real or not. So not only is that true for Peter, it's true for us as well. Do you really want to know if you love Jesus? There are a lot of people who say they love Jesus in words. But if you really want to know if it's true, then you have to answer the question, how well are you doing in your life at feeding the lambs of Jesus? How well are you doing in your life at feeding the lambs of Jesus? Also, let me point out that Jesus, when this is all going on, he never relinquishes control of the lambs, the control of the sheep. They don't become Peter's sheep or a succession of sheep after that. No, they're still Jesus' sheep. And another problem we have is we don't take care of the lambs very well, but another problem we run into is we think that these are, it's our job to, to be the shepherd in a controlling, authoritarian. It's my job to fix the problems in this church. It's my job to... We forget that as the followers of our Lord, He never relinquishes claim on any of His sheep. And then Jesus gives Peter this tough prophecy. Basically, He's telling Peter that He's going to be dying as a martyr. You're going to die for your faith in me now. And some ancient sources thought that the phrase, uh, and this is bared out in some places in the literature, that to stretch out your hands, stretch out your hands, that would be associated with the crucifixion, an image of hanging on the cross. So as best we can tell, about three decades after this prophecy is spoken, Peter actually faced his death. We think it was in Rome under the persecution of Nero. And some traditions even say that he was crucified. And even beyond that, people 
uh, written that Jesus was crucified up, or that Peter was crucified upside down. He wanted to be differentiated from the Lord. He didn't feel worthy to be even die the same way. So that's some from history there. But Jesus, uh, Jesus tells Peter this, and what a, what a strange thing to actually know that you're going to be murdered. You don't know when it's going to happen, but this is the way you're going out. I wouldn't necessarily take that as good news. <laughs> I can think of other ways I would like to leave this life than in violence done to me. So Peter, he's obviously not completely happy with this. So he turns and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved that, that he was following him. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? What about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? What business is that of yours? You, you must follow me. So when he says, well, what about him? You know, this is an important lesson for us, and we need to hear this, church. All the comparing we do. This is, this is not good news for me, Jesus. I don't want to die this way. I don't want things to go. What about this guy? All the comparing we do in our lives, let me just tell you, it's toxic. It's toxic. And this happens when we take our eyes off Jesus. When we take our eyes off the mission of God and what he has given to us, then we start thinking toxic thoughts about each other. When we get away from the mission of God to make disciples, we succumb to madness. Then it's all about looking across the, the what about this person? Oh, these are the, oh, I know them. They're the troublemakers. Oh, I know them. They, you know, fill in, fill in the blank. You know, the, the vice of envy is not very far from some of us. And we notice, oh, these are the people that are pretty good at helping themselves first. I've got the good manners not to say anything about that, but I notice it. All these people who are there who don't understand what it's really like. All those people who were born on third base and stand up acting like they hit a triple. See, a close companion of comparing is blaming. When you take your eyes off Jesus and what Jesus gives you to do, then it gets easy to get into the trap of blaming everyone for every problem going on in your life. See, the problem with this, the problem with all the comparing, with all the blaming, is that comes when we take our eyes off Jesus Christ. And then that, what that betrays, really, is your lack of faith. What that betrays in my life is my lack of faith. 
that I really, truly believe that God is going to take care of me. Because if I really believe that God is going to take care of me, if I really believe that God is just and that God is good, then what do we have to fear? Why do we have to compare ourselves? Why do we have to place blame on others, rub their nose in their own mistakes and their own brokenness while we're blind to our own? So that's some of the healing that is available to us in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus' gentle rebuke now, this is a second-fold healing that Peter is getting. He doesn't have to compare himself to John. He doesn't have to worry about what, what's going to happen with John. You see, God, when He deals with you, and when God, He deals with me, He deals with us all uniquely. Some could look at your life and they think, that's hard, while others may look at your life and think, uh, they they got an easy ride for some reason. They just seem to have it all. And then that comparing, and then that blaming. You know, there are people who just will not come to this church, or they come very sporadically because they think all these people they have their. They think they got it all right, and they just look down at me. Their noses are high in the air, and and a lot of times there may be that spirit that exists in certain people and in a church but a lot of times that is a lie the enemy is using to keep people away i'm not good enough there's not enough to go around we know who the ones who are in we know who the ones are out and i'm out but you know our life it gets a whole lot easier let me just say our life gets a whole lot easier when you give God some credit and you begin to accept that maybe God has led you on the exact path that you need in a unique way. I'm not saying that God does evil to anyone. He does not. And sometimes the, the burden of our own pride and our own stubbornness and our own sin, the consequences that come from that, they are heavy and they are harsh. And we try to put that on God or others, and we can't own our own role in those things very well. But maybe God sometimes, because He is God and because He is love, He leads us on the exact path that we actually need. See, like I was talking about how I compare myself to, to the rule keepers in my life. My sister, she just did it all right. Calvin was pretty windy path. Made my parents pretty nervous for a lot of years. Really helped their prayer life improve. My wife. That's, you know, and I, I began, at times, a seed of resentment could come out of that. But as I began to look at it, you know, the Lord knows what He's doing. He knows how prideful I am. He knows how stubborn I am. He knew what needed to break in me and my life. And He led me in a path that now I look back over it and I, I see His providence and I have feelings of gratitude and thanksgiving for the way that God worked in my life to break me. The way He continues to work to break me and bring me to repentance, to relinquish pride, to embrace humility. That's a hard thing for us sometimes. To relinquish the, the reins of our own life, to let our hand off the steering wheel. That's a hard thing for us. But 
But in the economy of the kingdom of God, in the economy of God's kingdom, we don't have to envy, we don't have to compare, we don't have to be jealous, we don't have to blame, because God is going to take care of you. You will get justice. You will get healing. You will not grow hungry. Go hungry. He's going to take care of all of those needs. And we, when we doubt that, we can't live like we're supposed to live. So anyway, uh, John felt it necessary with this incident. Obviously, there had been a rumor that had gone out uh, in these decades after uh, maybe disciples of John. This rumor had spread among the brothers that the disciple would not die. So now as an older man, John feels necessary to let them know, you know, this is not exactly the way that this was said. And uh, likely this gospel is written, I don't know what it was, maybe three decades after uh, the events that took place. Probably he's writing it together with, uh, at the request of the elders that he was together with in Ephesus, is my best get, guess with all that. So he goes ahead and clarifies this situation. And this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for all the books that could be written. So this verse, this next verse, the second verse there, we know that his testimony is true. So somehow this writer is included with a group of other people. My guess is it's other elders and friends who are with him together in Ephesus. Not even all the things that Jesus did. The world cannot even contain all of the books. You know, that's not just, I think it's Jesus' life and all of the things, and that's maybe artistic language that he's doing, but I think John realized too, this story of the perfection of Jesus Christ, that perfection keeps growing. It keeps, it keeps getting bigger and bigger. The story keeps getting better and better. Because it's including more and more people. The world cannot contain all of the acts of Jesus because the acts of Jesus continue on in the world today. And the miracle of what he's working in your life and the miracle of what he's working in your heart. So uh, one other thing I wanted to draw our attention to is... uh, and this is just kind of an aside I'm throwing in. Think about the places where Jesus reveals himself. After his resurrection, the ways and the places that Jesus reveals himself. Jesus reveals himself to us when he calls us by name. Remember the story of Mary in the garden? She's the first one who gets to see the resurrected Lord. And she doesn't realize, she thinks he's a gardener until he says, Mary. And the speaking of her name, suddenly all reality changes. And further on in chapter 20, when the disciples are hiding behind locked doors, Jesus is in their midst. 
Thomas, he can't believe it. He feels like he's missing out because he wasn't there. Then Jesus comes again behind locked doors. And he shares the marks of his vulnerability. Our God who is vulnerable with us. That is an amazing thought. Jesus reveals himself in the miraculous catch of fish. It's when the results are beyond anything even possible. We realize that was Jesus working. From John 21. And then I just threw in one more because I love this story. It's Jesus' appearance to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He shows up. These, These disciples are kept from recognizing who Jesus is. And they go on their way and Jesus kind of makes like he's going on, but this, he's explaining things to him. He's, they're learning from him. They invite him to stay. And he stays and he shares many things with them. But they don't know it's Jesus until the breaking of the bread. What a symbol of what we share in the Lord's Supper. What a symbol of fellowship. Think about these things, the ways that Jesus reveals himself to us in our lives. The intimacy of knowing my name. The intimacy of sharing who he is with me and the marks of his own vulnerability. He comes and shares himself with us and with the church. When the fruit of what we produce, it just doesn't make sense. It's cracked and as broken as we are, as messed up as we are. We can't get along. We can't get along with ourselves. We can't get along with each other, our families. And yet somehow we're being used and the fruit that's being produced. Sometimes we look at that and we say, that is God at work among us. And the sweetness of fellowship, the sweetness of sharing the Lord and in the Lord and the breaking of bread, Jesus is revealed. So just think about those things a little bit. All right. We've gone through, verse by verse, the entire Gospel of John. Except one more time to a couple verses that we skipped, chapter 20, 30, and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You've heard me say it in a lot of different ways and a lot of different iterations that the interpretive key to understanding John's gospel, it's all about building and experiencing relationships. Relationships with God, relationships with each other. We know that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. This is the Word that was with God in the beginning. It is the Word that was life, the life of Jesus Christ who becomes the light of all humanity. We hear that. But in the hidden music of John's gospel, that hidden music has always been about the beauty of John's gospel. As John writes, he knows. 
It's all about what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. This is written that you may believe. The music of your faith, it may grow. So you remember early on in the series, I shared a story, kind of a, a, a analogy of what I think that this music is like, what I think this hidden work of God in our hearts is like. And I, I, I found the best way to describe it is music. And so I told this story about the cellist of Sarajevo, Vedran Smelovic. He was a musician from Bosnia who played his cello in bombed-out buildings during the Bosnian War and the Siege of Sarajevo. Well, when he would go out and he would play his cello, he did it after a market was bombed, a mortar shell went off, and it killed 22 people who weren't belligerents. or They were people who were trying to get food because they were starving. This mortar kills 22 of them. So for 22 days, he takes his cello and he plays music in places where music should not have been. By all rights, by all rights, music should not have been playing while war's going on. It's not something that's normally associated with, the, with horrific situations like war. But as he would play, that gentle music would bounce off the ruined buildings and the rubble, and people would pause in awe and wonder, and they couldn't figure out why this was happening. In that moment of their greatest darkness and their greatest need, something beautiful was happening. And small seeds of hope and goodwill were ignited. See, that's the way the Holy Spirit works in our own war-torn lives, in our war-torn hearts, in our brokenness, in our neediness. By, By all rights, you look at my life. I know the compromises I have made. I know my own brokenness. My sin is ever before me. And yet there's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Music should not be there. And yet it is there. And the Holy Spirit takes that song. And that song grows. And we learn to pay attention to it. And it becomes like a a spring inside of us. A spring inside of us. All of these things, these words from John, are written that you may believe and that you may find life in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the beauty of the hidden music of the Gospel of John. That we may find life in Jesus Christ. And that that life can become a light of men and it becomes like a spring inside of us and it goes out. It becomes like a river of living water. It goes on and it blesses. And the story of our Lord Jesus Christ, it continues 
And we might feel like we're in the boat in the dark and in a storm and we're not catching anything. But that song continues. And it will be a river. It'll be a river. There may be tears for a night, but joy will come in the morning. That is the story of resurrection that Jesus works in our lives. If you have faith and you trust Him and you begin to listen to that song and you begin to step out in faith, see what faith is, is it's trust. The Holy Spirit will take from what is small in us and it will become something big. So I don't know how this, these words strike you. I don't know what your particular needs are. If we can help you in some way, if you want, to, want the prayers of this church, if you'd like to put on the Lord in baptism, we have opportunities for that. Let's see what God does and continues to do as he marches from victory to victory, even, in, even through all the mess of this present dark and evil age. God is going to get us where we need to go. God knows what he's doing. God is able. The Lord will provide trust, the secret and hidden and soft music that is playing in your own heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand and sing together.